You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hi, and welcome to SpyCast. From the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C., I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every week, the museum brings you interesting conversations with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We'd once again like to welcome our sponsor for SpyCast, Blue Apron. Go to blueapron.com for more information. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. We're joined today by Stephen Budiansky, who is the author of 17 books about military history, intelligence and espionage, science, the natural world, and other subjects. His writing has appeared in the Atlantic Monthly, the New York Times Magazine and Op-Ed pages, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, The Economist, and many other publications. He receives a Bachelor of Science degree in Chemistry from Yale and a Master's of Science degree in Applied Mathematics from Harvard. From 79 to 82, he was the magazine editor and radio producer at the American Chemical Society here in Washington. From 82 to 85, he was Washington correspondent and then Washington editor of the scientific journal Nature. In 85 and 86, he was a congressional fellow at the U.S. Congress's Office of Technology Assessment, where he co-authored a study of advanced conventional weapons technology. In 1986, he joined the staff of U.S. News & World Report, where he worked for the next 12 years in a variety of writing and editing positions, including national security correspondent, foreign editor, and deputy editor. He's also a member of the editorial board of Cryptologia, the scholarly journal of cryptology and intelligence history. His notable books include Blackett's War, The Men Who Defeated the Nazi U-Boats and Brought Science to the Art of Warfare, Her Majesty's Spymaster, Elizabeth I, Sir Francis Walsingham, and The Birth of Modern Espionage, an earlier book on cryptology called The Battle of Wits, The Complete Story of Codebreaking in World War II. His newest book is Code Warriors, NSA's Codebreakers in the Secret Intelligence War Against the Soviet Union. Welcome to the National Spy Museum. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us here on SpyCast. Thank you. So I, I, when, you, when you write about the NSA, I mean, intelligence history is difficult enough to write. But the NSA makes it particularly difficult. Uh, the NSA continues to resist revealing any real details about its successes right. against the Soviet Union during the Cold War. So can you talk a little bit about how you put together such a inclusive book on the NSA during this time period? Well, you know, when I wrote my book, Battle of Wits, about code breaking in World War II, that was in 1999, and NSA at that time was going through an unprecedented burst of openness about historical topics, at least World War II. They'd released over a million pages of documents from World War II, and there were a lot of people who NSA employees, former employees who had worked on breaking Japanese and German codes in World War II, who suddenly got the green light that they could talk about their incredible accomplishments at last. It's a very different situation now, as you can imagine, in what NSA officials always called the post-Snowden world that we're in. 
And I found no one willing to talk at all. Now, you know, all of that said, relying on personal recollections and stories, especially in the field of intelligence history, is a very dicey proposition anyway. So there are documents that have been coming out all the time from the Cold War era. It's been a slow process. A lot of them are, you know, you, you get one of these reports and you, you think, at last I've got something that'll really tell the story. And it's gone through this declassification process and they've snipped out right like, in every other word. I mean, some of these things are just like a joke. There was one sentence, I, I kept a collection of some of my favorite crazy redacted sentence uh, documents there was one sentence which was something like blank was the most important source of blank during the period <laughs> blank to blank <laughs> so um it was a huge challenge of course um piecing things together though is the name of the game mm -hmm. and combining that with some general understanding of codes and code breaking and computing I was able to get somewhere anyway. And I think what I was really trying to do in any case was not so much produce an expose and revelations, but try to actually tell a narrative story of how was this work done? What were the challenges? How was the world changing during this time? I, I, when I taught intelligence history at the University of Maryland, I kept on my desk one of my favorites. Oh, yeah. And uh, it was an official history of the Office of Scientific Intelligence, which was formed right after World War II at CIA. And it, official histories are for internal use more than anything else, but this was finally declassified, heavily redacted. And there's a great sentence that said, the most important thing that you need to know from this is redacted, 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 right. redacted, yeah, redacted. Yeah. And then four pages later, you turn it and said the next 73 pages redacted in yeah, full, I, and that, that went up. It's right, like, really, yeah. you know, yeah, why I, even release it? Why even yeah, release I, it? I ran into some of those too. Now, you, you, you score great triumphs once in a while, which you take great pleasure in. There was one 1950 report um, about NSA and it had been partially released and one of the things in this document it said it was describing where we had intercept stations monitoring Soviet radar facilities and in this document the sensors had removed the reference to where the stations were located but left in the radio frequencies they were covering. Well, a few months later, the same document went through NSA review in response to, I guess, someone else's request. It was reviewed by a different person, obviously, in the declassification office. It was released, and in that one, they had done exactly the opposite. <laughs> they cut out the frequencies but left in the location. So, you know, often you're, you're doing this kind of detective work yeah. of just digging through for any little pieces you can find. And a lot of it was putting together small things. You talked about your earlier book, which focused on World War II, but I think a lot of people may be surprised out there to find out that the the work against the Russians, which is your book really focuses on, actually begins long before the Cold War begins. Yeah. It begins during yeah. the war, which to me seems odd because... It was odd. They were already overwhelmed by radio traffic from the Japanese and the Germans, and they decide to put a lot of effort yeah. into breaking Russian codes. Yeah. It, it was odd, and there were several things going on. Now, what's interesting, William Friedman, who was the great pioneer of American cryptology, who almost single-handedly kept our capability going in the 1920s and the 1930s, hired the first three mathematicians who later became all senior officials at NSA in the 
after the war. He argued in 1942, he said, we're overwhelmed trying to keep up with the Japanese army problem. Let's just forget about doing anything else. We have this great agreement with the British to share everything. The British are already ahead of us on breaking diplomatic codes of other countries. Let's give the diplomatic problem to the British and concentrate on winning the war. And the reaction from the higher-ups at, it wasn't NSA then, it was the Army's, Army Security Agency at Arlington Hall. The reaction from the higher-ups there was nothing doing, we're going to get everything. And they literally said that. Yeah. They said, it's our job to get as close as humanly possible to collecting all and breaking and reading and analyzing all of the traffic, not just from our opponents. They said from all those arrayed with us and against us. Pretty well, amazing. Yeah, I mean, and that's for, for people who argue today that it's the post 9-11 world that turn NSA into this collect everything agency. It goes back to the very beginning. They were doing this, you know, they had this mentality uh, 73 years ago. And now, it was interesting, too, there was one memo from the British liaison officer from Bletchley Park, who was stationed at Arlington Hall, the U.S. Army's code-breaking headquarters right outside of Washington here. And I can't remember exactly, it was, I think, 42. Um, It was, anyway, in the midst of World War II. And he had caught some hints that the U.S. was still collecting Soviet diplomatic and military traffic. Soviets were our allies and Britain's allies at this time. And he wrote back to London and he said, sooner or later, they're going to take a crack at this because they don't trust the Russians farther than they can can throw a steam shovel. Well, and the British had stopped spying on the Russians through signals intelligence by that point. Right, Right. Churchill ordered. He he said, you know, they're our allies now. We're going to stop. It, they st- even stopped collecting traffic, as I understand it. So their Y stations were just picking up German traffic yeah. and not even... Yeah, Soviet. not even trying to uh, monitor the Soviets. I, I, there's a lot of people out there that I think that they romanticized spies running around during the Cold mm-hmm. War. And, and I think we need to kind of set things straight a little bit. Because you understand that SIGINT was essentially the lone source of information about the Soviet Union in the beginning of the Cold War. I mean, Kim <laughs> Philby had essentially ruined human intelligence for the Allies going into the Cold War. Um, and you even say in your book, by the mid-1960s, more than 80% of the total intelligence product comes from signals intelligence. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the intelligence product about the Soviet Union. Yeah, it, it wasn't just Philby. Uh, it was the fact that Stalin's regime was a hermetically sealed country. It had secure borders, intense internal security. You had neighbors spying on neighbors all of the time. It was extraordinarily hard for an agent to get in and actually accomplish anything. The CIA in its early years very optimistically thought they were going to continue on the kind of daring-do parachute operations that their predecessor, the OSS, had done in World War II. And they kept dropping agents in. And we know now that Essentially, 100% of these agents who were dropped into Soviet-occupied territory in the early days of the Cold War were immediately captured and then either shot or turned around and played back as double agents to the West. And there were some at the time who were very opposed to this, who thought it was a fool's errand to be trying this. And the a U.S. Army officer was sent to Berlin to talk to the CIA station chief and find out what was going on. 
And he finally told the Berlin station chief of the CIA, he said, the only thing you're proving by dropping these guys into uh, uh, Soviet territory is the law of gravity. Uh, and it was a, I mean, a, a cynical comment, but it seems to have been absolutely true. And it was clear that from the documents I've seen, which included some very interesting outside assessments by panels of leading scientists and mathematicians who periodically reviewed NSA's programs. But very early on, I think it was around 1950, one of these outside panels noted that SIGINT is the only plausible source that the U.S. had at that time that could provide early warning of Soviet military mobilization and a potential nuclear attack. And I think until the advent of real-time spy satellites in the 70s and 80s, signals intelligence continued to be the source of strategic warning. Right. I want to talk a little about Venonums. I think that there, there are people out there that have at least heard of it. Yeah. Uh, certainly no one before 95 yeah. outside of NSA. Um, and, and to underscore how top secret this was, you were in the book that even even POTUS, even, even Truman didn't know what was happening when he took power. They just said, well, we don't need to tell the president yeah. about Venona. It was one of the most extraordinary uh, documents I came across in researching this book. So Venona as was the final uh, cover name. It had many previous cover names, but it was this project which began in while World War II was still going on, 43, to try to break these Soviet diplomatic messages that we realized had been enciphered with one-time pads, theoretically unbreakable, but for a brief period from 43 to about 45, the Soviets reused some of these one-time pads. The thinnest of possible wedges, but uh, the U.S. code breakers were able to do some extraordinary things of recovering many of these messages. And they began to reveal, most notably, the uh, identities of Soviet spies uh, spying on the U.S. atomic program Mm -hmm. and... uh, spies who had penetrated the U.S. and British governments. Um, so here it was a tightly compartmented program even at that time. Um, I'm not sure they used that term compartmented then, but it was very tightly held. There was a very small list of senior military and other uh, officials in the government who were permitted to see the product. Basically, uh, the Army tried to limit it to the FBI and themselves, and that was it. And the question came up at one point. One official said, well, shouldn't we let President Truman know about this? And the head of Arlington Hall, the Army Security Agency, wrote this memo that said, absolutely not. He's not one of the people entitled to know the results. I'm going to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Omar Bradley, uh, to get my decision uh, backed up. And Bradley said, yep, that's right. Um, I'll decide if the president ever needs to be informed and then I'll inform him. And apparently he never was. The result was that Truman was there defending Alger Hiss and uh, uh, Harry Dexter White and others who had been identified in these broken Soviet cables as Soviet agents. But it was considered, you know, this is one of the ongoing uh, real problems with secrecy surrounding signals intelligence is that safeguarding the mission has a way of becoming the mission itself. Right. 
and so there was such a paranoia you could basically say we can't let any hint to the Russians of the success we've had so we can't use these results and in fact none of this was used to prosecute I mean directly brought in as evidence in any trial or in any case because they didn't want to give away the fact that we were reading these uh, these Soviet codes. And I think it's clear that the Rosenbergs would have had a very different fate yeah. if these were brought in. And Ted Hall, who is yeah. one of the most infamous spies, yeah. gets away scot-free, and right. maybe is the worst on the bunch, and they had no evidence beside Venona right. to try to do anything with him. I think it's interesting, and a lot of people out there may have the perception, uh, just like they have the perception that Alan Turing single-handedly broke <laughs> yeah, Enigma, right. that it was a lazy code guy at the Soviet embassy using a one-time pad twice that helped Bonona break. But Bonona was broken by a combination of multiple means that just kind of really turned out the luck in many cases. This was a mistake in printing by the Soviets of duplicating one-time pads. But also there are several different avenues from Igor Gazenko to German POWs to uh, a lot of different ways that we were able to finally break Bonona. Yeah, but it really did come from fundamentally from the fact that apparently under the pressures of wartime needs, some of the printing plants that in the Soviet Union that were responsible for preparing these one-time pads took a shortcut, and they reused some entire pages. If they hadn't done that, this traffic would never have been broken. And one thing, in fact, that there's still a lot of misunderstanding about, people say, well, you know, why did they keep using it? Well, it was perfectly secure when they went back to really using these one-time pad pages only once. And it was only this brief window from about 43 to 45 or 46 on some networks where they were still using some of these pads that had duplicated pages. But once they stopped that, it was unbreakable again. And um, so we were not able, in fact, to read any subsequent KGB messages. But the project went on until the 80s at right. NSA of still trying to see what can we find out from these messages sent in well, 43 and 44 and when all said and done, as you write, we were only able to read less than half the traffic that oh, was Oh, it was a tiny percentage. No, yeah. it was much less than that. It was yeah. a tiny percentage uh, as, Yeah, you say in 1942, only 1.8% yeah, of the messages yeah. were read. So there, yeah. there's... There, there could have been a ton more spies that we don't know <laughs> yeah. about running yeah. around yeah. the United States. Um, and you mentioned the fact that we couldn't read the KGB. It was a little before that in the late 1940s, an event called Black Friday, where our, essentially it was the end of our ability to read yeah. Soviet messages. Well, in you know, right after World War II, and of course this is also one of the great frustrations to a researcher, because going through these documents, piecing together you know, code names that are mentioned here of a particular Soviet system and something else where they don't mention it, but it has to be the same device they're talking about. I was able to find out, to figure out, there were several Soviet cipher machines used in 46, 47, that NSA's predecessor agencies had considerable success in breaking. NSA still considers this classified. Mm -hmm. We'll not talk about the devices, uh, how they were broken, if they were broken. It's, this is 70 years ago. You know, as I keep saying to people, that's the same interval of time that separated the end of the American Civil War and the start of World War II. 
you know, a few things like electricity yeah. and the airplane <laughs> and the automobile came along during that era. Well, a lot has changed, obviously, right. particularly about cryptology. These machines the Soviets were using, it's mainly Soviet military machines we're talking about here, not KGB or, or espionage networks, but they, they had rotors that turned just like the German Enigma machine. If you have an iPhone, you have in your pocket an encryption device that is a quadrillion, 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 quadrillion times more powerful and more resistant to code breaking than any of these Soviet rotor machines from 1946, mm -hmm. but it's still classified by NSA. Right. Um, so all of that, um, th that aside, so the US was making some progress in reading this traffic. In November 1948, and this memo is available, has been declassified. Extraordinary thing to read. It, unprecedented coordinated change in Soviet code systems. On a Friday, everything had been going fine. The following Monday, there's nothing but dummy traffic being transmitted. Um, all of these systems have changed. The indicators have changed. Um, clearly, the encryption devices have changed. And for several months, all they did was transmit dummy traffic. And when they f it finally came back on, it was much more secure devices that were being used and procedures that were being used. And the high-level Soviet codes apparently did remain unbroken by NSA probably until 1979, when finally some results were achieved. Um, so... Um, the precipitating cause of this was a matter of great concern to Washington and London. At the time, and again, there are some memos I found about this, uh, reporting the discussions of the cryptologic experts in both countries, they, they were even worried this itself was an indication of imminent uh, Soviet military, right. perhaps an attack on West Germany, I mean, even because this kind of sudden across-the-board change in every code system is the sort of thing you do see when a country's about to go to war. Well, obviously that didn't happen, um, and there were other theories about what was going on. Was it just routine improvements in their security? Were they tipped off? Right. And we know now they were tipped off because there was a spy, William we spanned at Arlington Hall, who had been a U.S. Army soldier, but he was a Soviet spy. And he was a Russian linguist, a native speaker, and he was directly involved in the Venona project. And from a few memos that, during that brief period of openness with the KGB archives in the early 90s that have come out, it's clear he was the source that uh, informed the Russians about U.S. success in reading their codes, which led to this so-called Black Friday across-the-board changes. And, and really, at that point, we had to switch to an almost a plain text collection as our main yeah. means. And that, you talk about open source intelligence. You, basically, anything that was sent unencrypted was all that we had our access to. But even there, there's hundreds of thousands or millions of messages being sent that you could possibly get your hands on. Yeah, well, there's again, there's uh, one of the interesting documents that has been released is a memo from uh, Frank Rollette, who was one of the original William Friedman recruits, a young mathematician when he first started working for the Army's code-breaking group in the 30s, and he'd become an important NSA uh, official by this point. <coughs> and he says, the only plausible source we have now 
are unencrypted, plain language telegrams being sent on the Russians' internal, you know, the equivalent of like us sending a commercial telegram here. The Russians relied to a considerable extent on radio rather than cable. There had been a lot of damage to landlines during the war. It's a vast country, and many parts of the country had never really been served by landlines up to that point anyway for their cable traffic. So this, were, this was traffic that could be intercepted, sent by radio. And, of course, as you can imagine, a huge percentage of it was just completely mundane things. But a certain percentage were seemingly mundane things of, you know, coal car loadings and uh, uh, bank account numbers linked to particular state industries and so on. And NSA began this Herculean task of sifting through, it reached over, uh, I think, a, a million, a million and a half cables a month that were coming in to, um, uh, to NSA headquarters. And they managed to figure out, I mean, you know, under Stalin's Russia, even the organization of government was a state secret. And the most basic kinds of statistics on industrial production electricity production, steel production, oil production, were state secrets. So these plain language cables became a huge source of intelligence. They were able to identify the locations of major factories, major arms factories, uh, the organizations of government ministries. It was the primary, if not the sole source of intelligence about the Soviet atomic program for years. And it was also the leading source of reliable indicators of Soviet military mobilization. But as you can imagine, it was just, uh, it was sheer drudgery going through, especially in this pre-computer age. Interesting, I mean, and fascinating bit of of history uh, connected with this was that during World War II, uh, NSA's predecessors were under pressure to hire African Americans and it was of course still the days of segregation um, and so Arlington Hall did hire a, a fair number of African American recruits many of them were college graduates graduates of Howard University here in Washington historically black college many of them had been working at menial government jobs I mean way below their educational and skill levels. And um, after the war, this segregated, it was a, I mean, it sort of boggles the mind today. It was a segregated unit here of, you know, all black, black supervisor uh, eventually. Um, But they were given this task of going through these um, paper tapes that would come in of these intercepted Soviet cables feeding them through machines that would print out the printouts. It was, you know, it was sheer drudgery. And uh, Jack Gurin, who headed the Russian section, in his oral history, which NSA has released in part, he describes his reaction. He said, I came in, he didn't really, I think, know exactly. He just got the printouts of these cables. But he started, you know, managing all of this. And he said... You know, I looked at the scene. He said, "He said, okay, so here was this room full of people. Their job, he said, was to feed the tape into the printer, and when the printer jammed, to pull the tape out and start it up again. And as he, in his oral history, says, 
I looked at this. I said, these are all college graduates. He says, this is ridiculous. He said, that was their job. And so he, he did what he could. And one of the things he did was to train the people in this section to be scanners, as they were called. And they would, he taught them, you know, look for these Russian words, which have these whole, you know, patterns of holes right. at the top of each tape. And if it's one of these words on this list, it might be something interesting. And print those out, and the other ones forget it. Um, it, it also, of course, boggles our mind to think about this being done by hand in the, you know, in our day and age. But uh, one of these outside reports that uh, I mentioned, uh, review boards that came in, and also these scientists people like from Bell Labs were sort of shaking their heads, obviously, at seeing the sheer drudgery, as they put it, of this task. But as, as they put it in one of these reports, no more humane method has been devised of handling this you know, million messages right. a month. It, the Korean War is really the first real wartime test of this new system that's devised after the war. Not quite the NSA yet, because it comes like midway through the war. Right. What's interesting to me from reading the book is that this wasn't this had an issue, and it wasn't a technological issue. It wasn't a code-breaking issue. It was a fact of something very basic. It was no one spoke Korean. Yeah, and you know, when you think about, you can yeah. be as technologically advanced as you want to be with code-breaking and reading other messages, but if you don't have people that can speak the basic language, you've got yeah. real problems. Yeah, yeah, it was extraordinary. I mean, they, the army was like scrounging around to find: do we have anyone who knows Korean? And in fact, to show you how desperate they were, they had two Korean language instructors at the Army Language School, and they decided it was more important to ship those two guys to Korea right away, You know, even though that would leave no one to train new right. linguists, but it was that desperate a situation. There was literally no one else in the Army. And there was one guy who, had, I think, was had studied Japanese, and he would, had been trying to teach himself Korean on his own, and that was... You know, he, he was there in no time, too. And, and there were no Korean dictionaries available. And, uh, yeah, um, now I think, you know, <laughs> things have come a long way since then. And obviously there, there was a recognition early on when NSA was, was finally um, created in 1952 that not only do we need lots of first-rate cryptanalysts, we need lots of first-rate linguists. Well, there's a lot of times you're dealing with slang or you're dealing with, you know, cultural nuance that, you know, you're not going to learn. You know, a a few years ago when NSA was trying to do some sort of dog and pony shows with the press, they had me and a few other writers come in for a day. And, you know, it was a lot of the same old stuff, uh, the wonders of the Battle of Midway and so on, which I think we knew about. But they did sit us down with a small group. It was, and of course, they only gave us their first names, which was interesting. And it was a group, uh, it was a mathematician, young woman mathematician. It was a guy who was an expert, I guess, on the intercept side. And it was a linguist. And he was an Arab linguist. And he explained exactly what you're talking about, which I'd never really you know, thought about before. And he basically had spent years as when he was in graduate school living in, maybe it was Jordan, I think, speaking the language constantly. And he essentially said, that's just the very beginning. And he said, I've spent X number of years listening to the same people's phone calls. And 
There are people speaking Arabic somewhere in Europe and the Middle East where they were intercepting these conversations. And he said, you know, if you think about it, when you talk to your friends, you're talking shorthand. Right. You're, t you're making allusions to things that you and your buddy have talked about before. And some, you know, even a absolutely fluent English speaker, half the time probably wouldn't have a clue what you guys are talking about or referring to. And he essentially said, my job has been to spend 10 years doing nothing but getting into the heads of right. these guys. So being a absolutely, you know, top level proficient Arabic linguist was only almost the baby step to what it takes. What's interesting also is that how quickly they were able to turn this around because Singles Intelligence made a dramatic difference during the Korean War. One, yeah. during the Pusan perimeter, yeah. uh, and two, during the air war. You yeah. talk a little bit about the, the, the impact of Singles Intelligence on Korea. Yeah. I would qualify it to say it was limited. I mean, there were a lot of failures in Korea, and there were a lot of failures even as the war went on. The North Koreans had their own version of Black Friday midway through the war when they changed a lot of their code systems and they became unreadable. I think the really great triumph of SIGINT in the Korean War for the United States forces was in the air war when they finally created these, uh, you'd call it, the technical term would be a fusion center where they could bring together intelligence from intercepting air-to-ground communications, and of course the Russians and the Chinese were flying fighter missions as well as the North Koreans, so they had eventually had Chinese and Russian and Korean linguists all monitoring different channels. And uh, there was Morse code signals being intercepted between North Korean air defense sites, um, and these would be radar tracking information, for example, and it would contain information about their own friendly forces location. And by bringing all of this information together and then getting through all of the bureaucratic obstacles with the U.S. Air Force to be able to communicate this information directly to our fighter pilots in the air, we were able to frequently know, have advance warning of incoming MiGs long before they showed up on radars that our forces could use. And it clearly had a dramatic effect on increasing the kill ratios that were achieved mm -hmm. in the air war. And it's interesting, when Vietnam comes along, they had to relearn this lesson. And again, it oh. took a considerable amount of time to put back together this kind of SIGINT fusion process, encountering exactly the same bureaucratic obstacles of security concerns and command and control concerns and the Air Force saying, no, only this center is allowed to talk to fighter planes. You SIGINT guys are not allowed to talk directly to them. And um, well, you write in the book how about during Vietnam that was almost reversed completely. It stood on its head where our comsec was so bad. Yeah, it was terrible. That the North Vietnamese had maybe better warning than we did during Korea of impending B-52 strikes. Certainly and, uh, bombing um, strikes. There was long advance warning uh, and when it was finally proved. And the Air Force was very stubborn about instituting communication security. Their sort of standard view was, well, the air, air, war, air battles uh, move so quickly, uh, it doesn't matter. We can send 
messages in the clear and it, it won't matter. Well, it's extraordinary. You write in your book that the rolling thunder, which is this massive air war at the beginning of Vietnam, <clears throat> they end up noticing that 90% of missions had MiGs waiting for them yeah, when they got there right, and, yeah. and realized through unencrypted comms and traffic analysis gave as much as eight warn eight hours warning yeah. of an attack. I mean, yeah, and most of that was traffic analysis yeah. because there was this incredibly patterned series of messages that would go over the radio waves before one of these missions. They would be sending messages to um, the refueling uh, bases, the bases that would launch refueling jet uh, planes into the air, and the fighter um, um, escorts, and all of the logistics. And it didn't take a genius to see, hey, when there suddenly appears all of this radio traffic going from this station to this station and this station to that station, that means the Americans are coming in eight hours. I'd like to take a, two minutes to talk to you about Blue Apron. This is a great company whose mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone. It achieves this by supporting a more sustainable food system, setting the highest standards for ingredients, and building a community of home chefs. Blue Apron has established partnerships with over 150 local farms, fisheries, and ranchers across the United States. As a result, their seafood is sourced sustainably under standards developed in partnership with the Monterey Bay Aquarium Seafood Watch. Their beef is raised humanely, chickens are free range, pork is raised naturally, and regenerative farming practices are used for produce. Because Blue Apron ships the exact amount of ingredients required for a recipe, they're reducing food waste. To give you an idea of some of the meals available here in August, you get spiced pork burgers with goat cheese and cucumber corn salad, summer vegetable and quinoa bowl with fairy tale eggplants, shinsido peppers and corn, and chicken tinga tacos with summer squash and tomato salsa. Now, I don't really know what most of this is, but that's not really new for me. I've been eating Blue Apron meals for quite some time now, and I can attest that their meals taste great, even if I can't pronounce all the ingredients. Actually, that's one of the coolest things about Blue Apron. I never would have tried any of this food if I wasn't getting it sent to me. Now I've found that I actually like some green foods that don't necessarily come in a box with a cartoon character. So for less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. And each meal comes with step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients and can be prepared in 40 minutes or less, even by someone like me. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com spycast. This is legit free food, people. Go to blueapron.com slash spycast. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. Blueapron.com slash spycast. What, what, what's going back to Korea, the last thing we'll deal with here, yeah. what, what was interesting to me is one of the real significant failures of the Korean War wasn't a collection failure or even an analysis failure. It was really a dissemination failure. It was convincing MacArthur yeah. about the Chinese. Yeah. Because that's seen historically as one of the premier, for lack of a better word, intelligence failures in American history. But it had nothing to do with our ability to know it was coming. Yeah. It was all about convincing the policymaker, in this case, MacArthur, yeah. of the reality of the situation. Yeah. That's also a recurring theme through uh, the history of NSA in the Cold War, is that some of the greatest failures were in how the information was handled by the policymakers and the military commanders. Sometimes it was that they were over-reliant on SIGINT and didn't understand the nuances and the caveats that came with it. 
At other times, it was that they stubbornly insisted they knew better, which I think was MacArthur's case. At other times, it was a lack of experience because the World War II experience was already fading. In World War II, the, the great success of Ultra resulted in so many military commanders in air, sea, and land understanding this unprecedented role that intelligence could play. And as that generation retired and went away, those who remembered were very frustrated, in fact, by saying, it's like we have to start over again. Right. We're, we're reinventing the wheel here. MacArthur, of course, uh, I mean, is a fascinating psychological study, but he insisted that he knew, he understood what he would always call the Oriental mind, and uh, he knew the Chinese were not going to intervene, he declared. And NSA, it was NSA's predecessor at that time, um, the Armed Forces Security Agency. And one of their Chinese linguists started noticing, again, messages sent in the clear, started noticing along the railway line that led up to the North Korean Chinese border, there were all of these Chinese soldiers sending cables back to their family saying, I've arrived safely, basically. And he started, over the course of several months, being able to piece this together and show that a vast Chinese force was being sent to the Korean border. And it was clear that they were preparing to intervene. And this was reported correctly, and MacArthur just blew it off, basically. Well, this is the time period before computers, and I'm trying to segue here to talking yeah. <laughs> a little bit about... Uh, the kind of computer revolution that that really changes the game when it comes to code breaking. Um, is it safe to say that code breaking was a, a catalyst for the computer industry oh, here absolutely. in the United States with Cray and, and with a lot of other things? And were, in fact, I think for a very long time, it was that uh, code breaking had more influence on the computer industry than computers had actually effect on success in code breaking. Throughout the 50s and 60s, NSA was pursuing the hope that if only we have more powerful computers, we'll at last achieve the much uh, hoped for breakthrough against high-level Soviet codes. And it's certainly the case that many key innovations in computing were a direct result of meeting NSA requirements and contracts. The first magnetic core memory, the first magnetic drum memory, first all-transistor computer, the first computer workstation, the first desktop computer, uh, the first high-speed tape drives, the first high-speed modems, and the first supercomputers, you mm -hmm. mentioned Cray, were all built for NSA. And only subsequently did these technologies then make their way into the commercial sector, obviously with enormous consequences in every one of those instances right. of things I've, I've mentioned j just there. Um, the flip side, I think, is, is less clear because time and again, there's this expression of frustration by, particularly by some of the outside mathematicians who were looking at the spectacle of NSA's huge budget and huge computing facilities. And um, they were saying, you know, uh, this idea that if only you have the next generation of more powerful computer, this will solve the problems is probably not the right way to go. Um, this is, um, a constant theme, in fact, throughout, I think, the Cold War, 
which again goes right back to NSA's origins, is this sort of, you know, we're going to keep doing it the same way we've always been doing it, but just more. Right. And, and that it, will solve the problem. And it became pretty obvious that early computers didn't really stand a chance. I mean, they were not, not at the level of, uh, of technology to tackle any of these major well, codes. The, but, the, you know, the other really important thing that was taking place, and again, these outside panels noted it. It was fascinating reading these reports from 1950 and the mid-50s, where they kept saying there's a fundamental change that's going on. The advances in technology are favoring code makers over code breakers. That goes back to what I was saying about your iPhone. I mean, mm -hmm. you have, again, in your pocket, this unbelievably powerful encryption device. You know, it, it may not even be breakable, even with the most powerful computers in the world right now, but it certainly would take more than one iPhone to break right. the encryption of one iPhone. Um, and um, I think, you know, th this was the most frustrating thing of wanting to really learn about the successes that were finally achieved and how they were achieved. And to say, of course, still won't really talk about this, but it looks like the Cray supercomputer played a huge role, as did NSA's <clears throat> I would say, reluctant decision to bring in top level, to create basically a think tank right. at Princeton, Ida uh, uh, Institute for Defense Analyses, to allow top academic mathematicians who are not going to come and make a career working inside the wall of NSA, but to tap their minds and, and insights. And I, I, I did speak to Admiral Bobby Inman, who was one of the few participants in these events willing to talk. He was NSA director in 1980 during this time. And he certainly gave me a few hints. Um, and I finally, I thought, I'm just going to write up what I think. I'm just going to write sort of a guess as a draft of a couple of pages of my book. I sent it to him. And I basically said it was the Cray supercomputer combined with the mathematical insights, high-level mathematics from Ida, that led in 1979, at the time of the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, to breakthrough. And so he called me right away, and he was immediately, again, he, evasive. But mm -hmm. finally I said, so, I said, so where I say this, you know, um, I said, I'm assuming if I was really barking up the wrong tree here, you'd tell me. He said, yes, I would, and that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> but, okay, I guess that's a confirmation. Yes. <laughs> as close as you're probably going to get at that point. Well, you, you, you refer to the idea that there was this real shift in, in moving on to thinking about theoretical mathematics. and, yeah. and thinking. It, 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 William Friedman, as anyone who studies science or code breaking, is kind of this larger-than-life personality. Yeah. Many would argue, not many, let's say some would argue <laughs> that he is, was as good you know, or maybe even better than what Alan Turing had to do, because at least Turing had an enigma to look at, and Friedman's group broke purple without ever actually seeing one. Regardless, yeah. At some point, Friedman and his people were becoming obsolete. They just yeah. they didn't stay up. It's just because of age, and because they just weren't in touch with the new theoretical math, with information theory, which right. we talk about here. How much did NSA have to evolve? Yeah, I mean, are, have you already answered this question, or is there more no, to it? No, I think there's a little more to that, because I think this was really one of the prices that was paid for this hermetic secrecy. Because, you know, to NSAers, 
secrecy, they're born with this. They think the worst thing you could possibly do is hint anything of what we're doing because that'll alert the bad guys and they'll change their codes and, and we'll have to start over or we, we'll never again, we'll lose this source forever. But I think to a historian looking at this as an outsider, you see secrecy is always an evil. Now, sometimes it's, a, of course, a necessary evil, but it's still an evil. And I think you really see this in NSA in the 50s in particular, where they are sealed off from connections with the academic world, from the larger values of society, for mm -hmm. that matter, for being held accountable. And I don't mean held accountable for violations of the law. I mean held accountable for producing results, really, or even for facing up to their own mistakes or their own habits of mind. And William Friedman in the 50s was still a senior figure, much revered figure at NSA, senior consultant. And it's pretty clear in reading some of these reports of liaison with the scientific community, which was Friedman's role, he's trying to keep these guys' hands out mm -hmm. of it. He's trying to say, well, you know, you can't really help with breaking the albatross machine, this high-level, you know, very difficult Soviet problem, unless you're willing to devote three months or six months to come and work in. Of course, all of these university professors, they're not right. going to do that, especially if they don't know if they're even going to be cleared for it, because they weren't. And, um, and you really see the World War II generation of code breakers who had relied on sort of the same old bag of tricks of frequency counts of words and this sort of thing right. which you know did amazing things with brilliant people but the world was changing and again you know evidence most most dramatically by the fact that they weren't able to break these high level soviet codes so um i think you really and the senior officials at nsa in the 50s were all people who were of the world war ii generation most of them, Friedman's own protégés, literally. Right. And there was this enormous resist, bureaucratic resistance to the idea of doing it in any different way. It's like, we are the cryptanalysts. We know how to do this. These pointy-headed mathematicians <laughs> can't really help us because they don't understand our problems. That's the other great evil of secrecy. It becomes a priesthood. It's only, we're, we, only we know how to do this. Only we are qualified to judge it. Um, and, you know, I, I've often quoted Lord Acton, the great 19th century British statement, statesman who said, everything secret degenerates. And I think that's really true. And we saw this here. And it wasn't, Inman, I think, played a huge role in really breaking from that. And he really shook things up right. and really set about sort of saying, okay, the World War II generation, you know, it's time for you guys to pass the baton. You, 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 there's a moment during NSA's history that you say transforms SIGINT operations as nothing else in the post-war era, and this is when SIGINT goes to space. Yeah. You know, what, what, what is the true impact of this? Because it eliminates all sorts of problems. Oh, my goodness. I mean, you know, the, having to man these intercept stations in remote places in potentially hostile countries, I mean, you look around even through the lens of 1960, um, okay, it was Turkey, Iran, Thailand, um, Japan. Um, they were our allies then. 
Some of them are still our allies, but even the ones that are our allies, it became a sensitive issue to have right. American bases. The Philippines, Philippines, major SIGINT bases, but the U.S. had to um, get out of there um, because it became, uh, you know, in the, in the tide of rising nationalism, same thing in Africa. Um, it wasn't even so much the U.S. versus Soviets um, and the proxy wars. It was in an era of rising nationalism. It was seen as an infringement on national sovereignty to have this big American spy base right. sitting right there. Well, and people don't understand that. Think about you know putting in out Virginia a Iranian spy base. It yeah, probably right. would rub people the wrong way around here. I guess, yeah, or even a French spy right, base yeah. about, or a British spy yeah. base, even you know. Um, and so, yeah, it solved that enormous problem. Um, it solved the problems of, you know, it really was an art of, in, of radio intercept because at high frequencies you're dealing with atmospheric skip and the sunspot cycle changes and, you know, uh, what, you know, how do you have to tune the antenna and what frequencies are you going to be able to get on this particular day? Well, and VHS and VHF and UHF Is didn't have that sight, ionic map, but, right. But, but their line of sights, which means you had to be really close and you yeah. couldn't have, you know, mountains or even buildings in the way. And so satellites what, eliminate that yeah, issue, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so, of course, that's why Berlin was a hot spot for uh, tapping into Soviet microwave signal networks because you could get pretty close. That's why embassies such as our Moscow embassy, yeah. became a yeah. hot spot for that. But yeah, satellites had line of sight for, you know, even microwave signals basically escaping, you know, directly out into space. Well, that made it great for ELAN <clears throat> operations also because you could pick up radar signals, you could pick up those kind of things where you wouldn't need uh, ferret flights or wild weasel yes, flights right. to no, get themselves. Good point, exactly, too. And this was one of the most dangerous and provocative sorts of signal collection missions in the Cold War where we were sending planes, often planes that of course were the same models as bombers that could carry nuclear weapons, you know, right uh, along the Soviet border and some that deliberately penetrated Soviet airspace. Um, and of course a good many, a dozen or so, were shot down in the course of the Cold War. And, uh, a good many lives lost that were kept secret at the time. One of the things that we focus on here a lot at the Spy Museum is the Cuban Missile Crisis. The reason mm -hmm. I say that we have a a very great program, very great, a great program for uh, for middle school and high school students where they go through the analysis of the Cuban Missile Crisis. They try to figure out what Kennedy and XCOM was thinking about the evidence that came in through Imint and through human sources like Oleg Mikovsky. Hmm. We rarely talk about the SIGINT side oh, of it, really? and the SIGINT side of the Cuban Missile Crisis is really fascinating because it was our first indication that the crisis may end in the way that we hoped right. it would. That's right. And there's a couple of very interesting things about SIGINT in the Cuban Missile Crisis to me. One was, first of all, the role of plain language messages that were intercepted in providing the first indication of the increased Russian military presence. There were these calls intercepted on, again, just the ordinary telephone network, which heavily used microwaves in Cuba at the time. Um, it was one, um, one guy at one base, air base, talking to his buddy at another air base. He says, you know, we all have to learn Russian. <laughs> and, and this literally was one of the first indications that yeah. uh, Russian air presence uh, fighters were, were coming uh, to Cuba. Uh, they missed the key fact about the nuclear-armed missiles being deployed. Um, 
But the first indication at the crucial moment of the crisis that Soviet freighters on their way to Cuba had stopped and even turned around and were not going to challenge Kennedy's blockade of the island came from direction finding fixes and traffic analysis of um, of Russian communications. I believe there was a, a message sent in plain language to ships at sea saying be prepared to receive an important or an urgent message at this particular time. They couldn't read the contents of that urgent message but they were able to track with DF direction finding that the ships had indeed stopped. Again, your point about where the ball gets dropped about getting it to the people who need it. The US Navy had a strict rule in their intelligence office, well, we do not um, pass on intelligence findings until we have photo reconnaissance. <laughs> so almost 24 hours elapsed between the time NSA reported that the Soviet freighters had stopped and the information got to the Defense Secretary Robert McNamara. McNamara went nuts, as you can imagine, of saying, you know, here in the midst of this crisis, right. you, you're telling me you waited the next day to send some fighters off, a, you know, to go take a picture of this before you were willing to tell me this. Um, Extraordinary. I mean, uh, yeah. luckily nothing happened in that day. Exactly. It was a real yeah. problem. Um, in, the, in the time of Snowden, which we are now knee deep yeah. in, um, people may forget if they were alive at the time or if they uh, don't know their history that this is not the first time the NSA has found itself in some domestic hot water. Oh, yeah. Uh, a big part of the Nixon issues when it came to Watergate and everything surrounding it involved the NSA and his, his enemies list, his watch list. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that and the result? And the result, in, in this case, I'm kind of leading you to water saying during the Carter administration, things like FISA. Yeah. yeah. Well, it was interesting. I mean, during the Watergate investigations, a lot, of course, came out about CIA's role in this. And the new CIA director who came in and said, we have to make a clean breast of this instantly. That's when the so-called Family Jewels right. report came out where they um, looked at all of the questionable operations that CIA had been involved in. and. So the director of the uh, Senate Investigative Committee that was doing all this said to his staffers, uh, NSA must have done something. To right. You guys look into this. And of course, that's quite a story too. And I related in, in my book that one of the participants in this has told, uh, I'm sure many times, including in CIA's own Studies at Intelligence Journal, which was a fascinating article he wrote about his experiences on the church committee. Um, but they did eventually find that there were two programs in particular that NSA had been involved with that raised a lot of questions about domestic surveillance. One was the NSA having continued its World War II era practice, even after the war, of simply having the cable companies hand over to them every international cable. Uh, center received. Each Which would sound really familiar to anybody who's exactly. followed the last yes, couple right. of years. Yeah. And the other, though, which I think was a much more serious issue, was NSA's so-called watch list. And this had begun with, during the Kennedy administration, requests from the White House to NSA to monitor the communications of Americans traveling to Cuba. Then it was expanded to drug traffickers. 
Then it was expanded under Johnson to anti-war protesters. Johnson was convinced there must be some foreign direction of the anti-war movement, so that was his justification for NSA monitoring the phone calls of these people. And then under Nixon, it exploded to really what was Nixon's famous so-called enemies list. Hundreds of names, uh, newspaper correspondents, Art Bookwald, the humor <laughs> columnist, um, Muhammad Ali, leaders of the civil rights and anti-war movements, and people who were simply, you know, political um, uh, or journalistic critics of Nixon and Kissinger. And uh, even David Kahn uh, ended right. up on the watch list, who wrote the famous book about uh, the code breakers, the yeah. first real look at NSA. Member NSA, of our board here at this yeah, point. Oh, yeah. And NSA decided uh, they ought to keep an eye on him, too. Um, and it was clear, too, no one at NSA knew, uh, thought that this was kosher, that this was legal. They took extraordinary measures to keep NSA's fingerprints off the reports that were circulated. They didn't mention the agency that came, they came from. They were not serialized in the usual fashion as NSA serial reports. But no one at NSA stood up to the White House and said, no, sir, I'm sorry, we can't do that. That's a violation of the law and probably a violation of the Constitution. And I think that, to me, is the real lesson about the Snowden revelations. I've talked to a fair number of people at NSA over the years, and almost uniformly, they are decent, honorable people, men and women with integrity. I think if you carefully read a lot of the Snowden documents, you'll see they took actually great pains to try to keep the focus of these recent programs on potential terrorists. Um, there may have been you know, individual cases of abuse of some analysts late at night saying, hey, I think I'll monitor my girlfriend, right. you know, my ex-girlfriend or something. But, you know, as a rule, I mean, they really did try to, I think, do it right. It was very different from what happened uh, under the Nixon abuses. Nonetheless, the potential and the capability there, I think, is very, very troubling. And, of course, this is what led to the recent vote in Congress to end the bulk uh, telephone right. metadata collection program. And I think, you know, the real lesson, again, is when you see who's going to stand up if the president says, I want you to go, um, you know, listen, you have this capability. It's to protect the country. Right. You're going to say you're not going to protect the country? You're going to uh, disobey the president of the United States, in the commander in chief? Well, and don't forget, NSA is a military right. organization. They are in the military chain of command. Well, it sounds very similar if there, is, if there was a potential historical analogy here to what was happening under Kennedy and Johnson, what was happening during the Snowden period. And there was just waiting for someone like Nixon to truly abuse the system. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I, I, mean, I, I mean, that, that, and that is a legitimate concern, I think. And um, so uh, now, you know, after the Watergate investigations, this led to the establishment of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court this requirement that if NSA is going to monitor the communications of a U.S. person, uh, they have to get a warrant. So there's at least that, right. you know, break point, that, uh, that scrutiny by some, you know, outside oversight 
by a secret court that secret court that's... where there's no one representing the other side and i don't yeah. I, probably the percentage of things that were denied is I th- like i believe they have never denied yeah. what i understand they've sometimes told nsa no go back and reformulate right. this a bit um it's interesting in some of the things that have come out af- as a result of Snowden's revelations um in these more recent events the FISA court did a number of times really chastise NSA for misrepresenting uh, the extent of their programs, misrepresenting uh, how much they were doing to actually minimize the inadvertent collection of other Americans' uh, communications. So uh, they were at least playing some more active role in some of these these more recent things. But still, yeah, it's... uh, uh, it's a very strange sort of oversight. Right. Uh, let's look at a very, wrap this up by looking at a very broad stroke question, a big picture bottom line. I, not that I'm here to defend NSA. I have never worked for them, nor Me will I. Me neither. I should emphasize. And, and I certainly don't have the, the math background to do it. But is it safe to say, and again, you have complete latitude in how you want to answer this okay. question. Is it safe to say that NSA and signals intelligence played a vital role, if not one of the most important roles in keeping the Cold War cold. Yes, I do think that's fair to say. And certainly in my book, I do not, I think, um, at all shy away from pointing out NSA's many failings, um, technically, legally, ethically, that uh, organizationally, that, have, that took place during the Cold War years. But I do think that Probably the most important contribution of U.S. signals intelligence, which means NSA in the Cold War, was in providing American leaders the confidence that they would have significant advance warning if the Soviets were going to launch a nuclear attack. And at moments of crisis, the fact that NSA was able to provide reassuring reports, no, there's no sign of Soviet bomber activity, mm-hmm. messages going from here to here, which we know would happen if they were preparing for a nuclear strike. It really helped to defuse situation, the situation. The 1956 Suez crisis is definitely a case in point. Khrushchev is making all of these belligerent threats. He's going to attack London and Paris with rocket weapons, he says. And NSA said, you know, there's no indication of any Soviet military moves. You can easily imagine, absent that kind of information, how these kind of bellicose threats could easily spiral out of control. And of course, the great dilemma of the Cold War was that in the nuclear standoff, there was a great advantage in being the first to push the button. And in a moment of crisis, you don't want to have to be the guy who takes the first hit. And I think up until the time when we had surveillance satellites that could provide real-time warning, NSA's role was paramount. He is the author of 17 books about a variety of subjects, all of them highly recommended. His newest book is Code Warriors, NSA Codebreakers and the Secret Intelligence War Against the Soviet Union, which is out now wherever good books are sold. Stephen Budansky, thank you for taking the time to join us here on SpyCast. It was my pleasure, Vince. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Blue Apron, for helping to make SpyCast happen. Remember, you can get three free meals by going to blueapron.com slash spycast. That's blueapron.com slash spycast. Thank you for listening to SpyCast. Remember, every Tuesday we will post a new podcast available from both spymuseum.org and iTunes. 
If you have any questions or comments about SpyCast, email us at spycast at spymuseum.org or leave a comment or review on our iTunes page. You can also follow us on Twitter at intlspycast. That's I-N-T-L-SPYCAST. Talk to you next week.